Good morning, everybody. Hope you're all doing fantastic. I'm doing pretty good. The last time I was up here looking at a crowd this big, I was getting baptized about two and a half years ago. Angela, my wife, my wife Angela, uh, she had said to me this morning, if I didn't believe that God was real today, <laughs> today I believe that he is real. Not a lot of you have known me for a, a long time, but uh, my parents, my, my wife, they've had that privilege, if you want to call it that, uh, and they can attest to that. So uh, I'm really excited to share with you um, just my reflections on God's word, what he's laid on my heart this morning. And we're going to be looking at a text, uh, Isaiah 53. So if you don't have your Bibles in front of you, we've got some free ones that you can take with you at the, the back door back there and right here as well. Um, I would, if you don't have a Bible in front of you, get one. I could be lying to you. You don't know. Seriously, like, get a Bible out. And we're going to be using the ESV translation. If you're not familiar with that, it's a, it's a very modern, recent translation. It's very good, very accurate to the, the literal original text. Um, big fan. So uh, just to introduce myself, my name is Ross Burns. I've been coming here for probably like four or five years. Uh, I got saved about that time, baptized two years ago. Um, awesome. I, uh, I'm a cook. That's what I do for a living. I cook things at a nursing home in Jenkintown. And one of the things that I like to do is just pick people's brains. I just like to walk up to them and ask them really weird, off-the-wall questions, usually centered around Christian themes. So uh, about six months ago, I went up to 15, 20 people and asked them a question. And I want to ask you guys the same question. Uh, it's a three-part question, sort of a trinity kind of thing. It's one question in three parts. Uh, it is this. Have you, ever heard that, uh, have you ever heard someone express that Jesus is their savior? I'm assuming the answer is yes. If not, Jesus is my savior. I'm just going to throw that out there. Second. <laughs> Awesome. <laughs> Fantastic. Second part of the question, uh, is that true for you? Would you say that's true for you? Yes. Now, whether the answer is yes, whether the answer is no, uh, what does that mean? What does it mean for you to say that Jesus is my Savior? I want you to reflect on that. Think about that. I'm going to give you five seconds of awkward, silent pause to think about it. So now that hopefully you have an idea in your head, uh, Jesus is my savior, and that means blank. Now when I asked people at my workplace, a lot of them were vaguely Christian or uh, not vaguely Christian, very you know, outspoken about it. When I asked them that, I was very surprised at the answers that I got in, uh, in response. Um, the three people I expected the most out of gave me no answer. The three people that attend church every Sunday, I asked them, what does it mean? They're like, wow, that's a great question. I don't know. Interesting, right? About uh, the majority, okay, well, all the other people except for one person told me, Jesus makes me a better person. He helps me get into better situations in life. He's delivered me out of so much uh, toil, so much, you know, just bad stuff. He's helped me in that respect. He makes me a better person. Even those who were not Christian responded in that manner. They thought that uh, when someone exclaims Jesus as their savior, they're saying they're making him a better person. Or rather, he's making them a better person. 
And then uh, the final person that I asked told me he died for my sins. Interesting. So that's what we're going to be looking at today, this text out of Isaiah 53. I'm, I'm actually kind of bummed. I wish I had gotten that cool uh, intro that we've been doing all sermon series. It's so cool. It just... That's okay. <laughs> yes. So stick around at least for the first five minutes of the sermon. I'll have that cool intro kind of thing. So open up your Bibles with me. Let's look at Isaiah 53. And we're going to be looking at uh, four points here today. We're going to be looking at uh, just a progressive argument. It's going to be uh, the statement, we have a Savior. Therefore, we have a need for a Savior. Therefore, God did something to save us. And therefore, we have a state of salvation as believers in Christ. Those are the four, the four points today that we're going to be looking at. If you'd please join me in a word of prayers before we look to God's word. Father, thank you so much for this, for this opportunity, Lord, to just be humbled at uh, just <laughs> my complete inability to do this and complete reliance on you to speak in and through me. Uh, Father, just thank you so much for this opportunity. Thank you that we can gather together as a body of Christ without physical persecution, without real you know, danger, we can meet in a public place. We don't have to meet in houses, hiding from persecution. This is a real blessing, a real gift. Father, I just thank you so much for it. I pray that you would just allow all of us to just reflect on these big questions, huge questions, Father. pray that you would soften our hearts, mine included, mine the foremost. Uh, God, just thank you so much. Uh, Father, I'd just like to finally pray that... Um, as I've had a cold the past few days, that I would not sneeze and deafen the entire audience. Pray for that blessing. And uh, finally, Father, I pray for my wife, Angela. She's probably more nervous than I am. Um, just be with her and quiet her nerves. Uh, God, I just pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Fantastic. So let's just read Isaiah 53, the whole thing. Let's just, let's just get all the cards out on the table. So I will read it. Who has believed... What he has heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, and like a root out of dry ground, he had no form of majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hid their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and as for his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people, and they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When he makes, uh, when he makes his soul, sorry, when his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring, he shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. 
He, will, he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Because he poured out his soul to death, and he was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sins of many, and makes intercession for the transgressors. So that's Isaiah 53. That's what we're working with. Now the, the spectacular thing about this uh, is, sometimes when I talk to people, they... Uh, they just kind of shoot off the New Testament. They're like, ah, you know, who knows? People have tampered with that. Uh, the amazing thing about this is this was written 700 years before Christ walked on earth. 700 years. And uh, just, a, just an aside, if you raise your hand if you've ever had a question or anybody has ever questioned you about the reliability of the Bible. I should see all hands. Uh, homework this week. This text, this particular Isaiah 53, and the, the whole Isaiah book, uh, do your homework. Look at the Dead Sea Scrolls, the Isaiah scroll found in the Dead Sea Scrolls. Compare it with the Masoretic text from 1000 AD. I'll repeat that. You may want to write it down. <laughs> the Isaiah scroll found in the uh, 1940s, the Isaiah scroll found in the Dead Sea Scrolls, compare that with the Masoretic text Masoretic text from 1000 AD. Compare the two. They're over 1,100 years in difference, and they're virtually identical. It's amazing. God inspired his word, and almost more impressively, God preserved his word. Just throwing that out there. Uh, so, boy, I shouldn't have done that. Now I lost my train of thought. Nah, I should have done that. That's important. Uh, when I was first coming to Christ, this was one of the passages that just blew my mind. Wow. I can trust what the Bible says when I, looked at, uh, when I looked at this. It's fantastic. So this first, these first five verses here, uh, just, I'm going to throw out some of the phrases to you. Just repeat them. No former majesty that we should look at him, despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. He has borne our griefs, carried our sorrows, esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, afflicted, pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities, Upon him was a chastisement that brought us peace. With his wounds we are healed. Anybody that thinks Martin Luther made up justification by faith in the 1600s has not read Isaiah 53. You know what I mean? This has been around for 2,700 years. It's fantastic. Uh, and there it is, our first point. We have a savior. We have someone who took our place, died for our sins. That's what it means for Jesus to be our savior. Uh, but the thing is, when you say that in the context of the West, when you say that in America, uh, you're going to get two of, one of two reactions. Someone's going to say, that's amazing, fantastic. I'm going to devote my life to this. Or the second reaction, are you implying that there's something wrong with me? Isn't that interesting? So that leads us to our second point. So we have a savior, which implies we have a need for salvation. We have a need. There's something wrong with us. Internally, inherently wrong with us. That's something crucial to understand. The gospel used to be good news, but that's because people understood their condition. These days, the gospel is more like a very unpleasant diagnosis. It's more like going to the doctor and hearing that you have cancer than it is there's a cure for cancer. And that's, that's just kind of where we are. So, but what is sin? We should take a minute and define our terms, right? What is sin? Uh, if you look at the classic old-school Westminster confession, sin is uh, any transgression or want of God's law. That's a pretty good definition. You can't really go wrong with that. 
uh, I would like to define it in terms relevant to Isaiah 53, if we, if we can. So verse 6 here, verse 6 is where I'd want to kind of rest for a while. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So remember how I said I like to go around to my workplace and ask people weird, oddball questions, just kind of get them going. So uh, a few months ago, I went around, and I asked people, and I'll ask you the same question, why not? Um, what animal do you most identify with? What animal is the youest you? I got answers, uh, like cheetah was a really popular one with the ladies. <laughs> oh, is that, is that common? Like, cheetahs? Okay, that's fine. Uh, I got a couple gorillas, a couple monkeys, uh, lions, bears, a sloth. And then uh, when they would ask me, what about you, Ross? What, what kind of animal do you identify with? I told them, a sheep. A sheep? What do you, why a sheep? <laughs> I had just been recently reading Isaiah 53, where it says, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. We're sheep. That's the diagnosis for this morning. We are all sheep. Now, to further understand our condition as sheep, I decided to do a little bit of homework. I went on YouTube, and I watched an hour-long documentary on sheep herding in Idaho. It was great. <laughs> I was, it, it sounds boring, but it was so interesting. <laughs> After reading Isaiah 53, it was so cool. Uh, some of the big takeaways, they really do that, too. Uh, in America, still, they, they herd sheep in the wild. Like, they, uh, they start one place, and then nine months later, they end up another place. And they walk through, across highways, uh, hills, wilderness. It's really cool. It happens. Uh, but the thing that struck me probably the most about this documentary about humanity was um, sheep are utterly helpless. Like, I don't know if the last time you've looked at a sheep, sheep have no claws. They have no fangs. They have no laser beams out of their back to <laughs> thwart off wildlife. Uh, they have no sense of direction. Sheep are helpless. Um, they're utterly dependent on their shepherd to lead them where they're supposed to be going. Utterly dependent. And it would be absolutely foolish for a sheep to, instead of following his shepherd, to go, you know what? Actually, I think that way looks a little bit better to me. I'm going to go over. Peace, guys. That would be foolish, right? You would say to that sheep, sheep, what are you doing? Don't you know that you need to be following your shepherd? You have nothing within yourself to find your way to where you're going. There's nothing that you can do, Mr. Sheep, that will get you to where you need to go. You're helpless. In the wilderness, you're lost. That's, that's where we are, ladies and gentlemen. I'm sorry to say that, but it needs to be said. This is the diagnosis. So uh, I would like to throw a little bit different definition of sin. Still very similar, but sin is the choice and the condition to be our own shepherd. That's what sin is. Sin is, and it's in all of us, in all of us. Uh, in the Psalms, it says, I was born in sin, born in iniquity. That's David. David says that. Uh, you'll, you'll see it all throughout the, the New Testament, this common theme of sin, that we are all sinners. We're born sinners. Uh, and that stems all the way back. What's the root of that? What's the cause of that? In uh, Genesis chapter 3, you see that the first time that our great-great-great-great-great-great fill-in-the-greats grandpa, Adam, chose to be his own shepherd, right? 
He saw the apple. He knew that God didn't want him to do it, but rather than follow his shepherd, rather than follow his leader, he decided to be his own shepherd, to get his own means of significance and self-worth and uh, security from eating that apple, from gaining knowledge, right? And that's exactly what we all have done ever since, all of us. All of us in this room, myself more than all of you, we have all done this. We have all chosen to seek significance and self-worth apart from God to be our own shepherds to where we're going. And so, uh, actually looking at it this way, looking at what sin is, uh, another aside. So looking at sin this way actually kind of helps us understand this, this problem of hell. How can hell exist if there's a loving God? How could he send us to hell? Uh, and a great way to look at this is, um, C.S. Lewis writes a great book called The Great Divorce. I guess I probably should have used a different adjective than great to describe the book. That's okay. So in this book, The Great Divorce, uh, it's a fictional book. Also not scripture, so take my words with a grain of salt. C.S. Lewis writes about uh, how this man woke up in this kind of like gray village. Everything's so gray. And uh, then they, they travel to this place where they see these white, really like almost angelic beings. Um, and then you can kind of infer from the context that they're in hell and they're looking at heaven. There's uh, people who live in heaven and they're imploring with the people, come, come into heaven, come on, it's, it's great here. And then all the people who are in hell say to themselves, ah, you know, it's not great here, but at least we're not up there. At least we're not with that guy telling us what to do all the time. We'd, we're, it's not great down here, but we'd rather be here. And I would actually... Uh, suggest to you that no one in hell wants to be in heaven. That's a, that's a, big, that's a big suggestion, right? But I actually do find it's consistent with scripture. Um, but again, it's not scripture. So take my words with a grain of salt. But that would be my suggestion to you. Uh, in fact, uh, since we're still on this aside, uh, Christopher Hitchens, the famous atheist journalist, well, the late Christopher Hitchens, he had famously said that he would rather be in hell than uh, subject himself to, you know, insert the words here, dictator. It's interesting, right? Someone would rather be in hell than submit to God. And I would say that that's the choice and condition of sin at work. So, so we understand that we have a savior, we understand that we have a condition that requires a savior. So I'd like to move into our third point. And I'm going to gather, gather that from verses 9 and 10. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no doubt, uh, no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul, uh, when his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring and prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Jeez, um, I guess I should have read 8 and 9, not 9 and 10. But that's okay. So uh, verse 9 and verse 8. So we see these ideas of how God saved us. And there are uh, allusions to the Old Testament, right? I'm sure all of you love the Old Testament, particularly the first five books. But uh, they describe to us, they're, they're all hints. They're all hints of what's coming. They're all pointing to one thing. The Bible is an amazing book. From Genesis all the way to Revelation, they all point to the person of Jesus Christ. And it's amazing and fantastic. One of the things that we see here. Uh, and he was cut off out of the land of the living, and he was stricken for the transgressions of the people. 
Uh, you ever heard of Yom Kippur? It's a really interesting Jewish holiday, and it goes its roots are all the way back into uh, Exodus and Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Points all the way back to that. Basically, how it was celebrated um, around the time of Jesus was that you would have uh, a lamb or a ram or whatever the thing was. I forget. So you'd have a, a young, you know, bovine animal, and what would happen is they would place, uh, they would pray, they would do these ritual ceremonies, and they would place all the guilt, all the sin of all of Israel on this one animal, and they would send it off into the wilderness. Isn't that interesting? What does that sound like? Sounds like this justification by faith thing we're talking about, right? Jesus was that lamb. He came to be that lamb. That's why God sent him. Didn't send him to be a good teacher. Didn't send him, didn't send him to lead a good moral example. He sent him to be that lamb to fulfill that thing that Yom Kippur, and actually it's Yom Kippur um, because they had to do it every year. They had to fill, fulfill that thing that Yom Kippur was talking about. Jesus was that lamb. He took the sin of all of us, once for all, Hebrews says, um, and he went out away from the city, outside of Jerusalem, and he took all our sin and bore it for us. That's justification by faith. That's what, uh, that's what God had, has done for us. That's how he saved us. There is no other way. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That's it. That is exclusive truth. Excludes everything else. And that's where we are. So I think it's interesting to stop right here, pause, and look at actually what this, uh, this doctrine tells us about Christianity when compared with other religions. This actually says, more, like, it says more bad, more bad, is that right? I'm not an English major. I was a culinary student. <laughs> more, it says more bad about us than any other worldview, any other religion, uh, including atheism, agnosticism, anything, says more bad about us than any other worldview, any way of looking at the human soul. It says more bad, but it also says more good about us than any other worldview. It says that, yes, we are worse than we could have ever possibly imagined, and yet we are more loved, more cherished, more important, more valuable than any other, than we could have ever imagined. That's what this is saying. Isn't that amazing? So we are, at the same time, worse and more valuable. We are more guilty and more loved than we could have ever hoped or dreamed. That's where we are. It's not a bad place to be, right? I guess it is. It's very nice. So that's where we are. Christianity is actually more pessimistic and more optimistic at the same time. It's great. So we're going to move into our final point. So we have learned so far that we have a Savior. We have a need for a Savior. God did something to save us. And then this fourth point, we have a state of salvation. I like the fourth point. It's my favorite. So 11 and 12. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. And by his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. And he yet bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. So it's interesting, actually. We have a shift in uh, verb tense here. It was past tense up until verse 11. We've moved from the past to the future. We're not looking back anymore. We're looking ahead. It's very interesting. So uh, 
you get all these, these visual pictures. I will never be able to pull apart all that's in Isaiah 53 in a half hour to 35 minutes up here. Uh, I would challenge you to go and look back, pull it apart. What is Isaiah actually trying to get his readers and future readers to understand through this passage? What does God want us to understand? And I'm going to do my best to get some of it out, uh, but it's up to you to keep looking. So in verse 11 and 12, we get this idea of, like the, the key part of this is, by his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. So remember that Yom Kippur thing we're talking about? How he bears the sin and he's cast out into the wilderness. That's what he did. But by doing that, he accounts us with his righteousness. Now, okay, I know you guys use the word righteousness all the time. It's a really popular word nowadays. Basically, uh, if I could put it in the simplest terms, righteousness is a state of acceptance, a state of moral acceptance. And there are different kinds of righteousness. There's uh, civil righteousness, in other words, uh, acceptance by authorities, like the law. So I have civil, uh, civil righteousness right now because I'm wearing clothing. I'm sure you all appreciate that. But the thing about that kind of righteousness is I could lose that righteousness at any moment by taking off my clothes. But I won't do that, so don't worry. But civil righteousness is so fragile. Uh, there's ethical righteousness. I could hit someone and lose that, right? I could lose my ethical righteousness, my ethical acceptance. However, Christian righteousness, this righteousness that we're talking about in Isaiah 53, is different than all other kinds of righteousness. Utterly different. It's not earned like the other ones are. It's received. It's not active. It's passive. That's the difference. That's what we're looking at here. We don't earn Christian righteousness. We don't earn acceptance from God. We are given it. That is the big difference, big difference between uh, biblical Christian doctrine and every other worldview, every other way of looking at the world. The, the, one of the, the biggest difference, really the biggest difference, is this idea of received righteousness, received acceptance from God rather than earning it. Utterly different. So when people tell me that all religions are equal, all religions are fundamentally the same and superficially different, I would say this is the core of Christianity right here, and it is utterly different than everything. Everything we've ever thought of, any religion anybody has ever come up with, this is utterly different. I use the word utterly a lot. <laughs> Uh, so that's what we're looking at. We're looking at this, and verse 12, Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. So uh, I was really confused by that. And I've been, I've been like, reading this a lot. <laughs> and then two weeks ago, my, my good friend Drew pointed this out to me. He's like, oh, it's, it's like, a, like a conqueror coming home and dividing the spoil with his, with his companions. I'm like, that's exactly it. How did I not see that? I've been reading this for, for months. But that's exactly, what, that's exactly what this picture is for us. So we have our conqueror, this servant that Isaiah 53 is talking about, the servant that's been talked about throughout all of Isaiah and uh, the Old Testament in general, this, this servant that we're talking about, that is Jesus Christ. And he has defeated death. He has defeated our sin. He, is, he went out into the wilderness just as the Yom Kippur sheep or bovine animal does. And he came back. That's the thing. He died, and yet he rose again. 
and he's defeated death. He comes back as a conqueror, and he shares a spoil with all of us, all of us who have put our faith in Jesus Christ and what he did on that cross. Uh, I would love to leave you with a couple illustrations that are my favorite. So, um, goodness, which one should I start with? Oh, I got it. So, anybody here read the, uh, any of the Peter Whimsey novels? Nobody. I haven't. We got one? Oh, fantastic. I've never met anybody. That is, <laughs> that is, this is great. Oh, man. Fantastic. So, the Peter Whimsey novels, so they were, they were novels written back in the uh, 30s and 40s, uh, maybe even 20s, by a woman named Dorothy Sayers. She was one of the first women to graduate from Oxford. Uh, back in the late 19-teens. Um, and she wrote a series of mystery novels centered around this, uh, this fictional character, Peter Whimsey. Uh, and one of, the, one of the things that we see happen over pr the progression of the novels is there's a new character introduced. Now, Peter Whimsey, he had failed relationships, um, and he was, just, he was just always in, I don't know, it was just never working out for poor Peter. He was a great detective, but boy, his relationship was just, his relationship life was terrible. But uh, one of the things that you see happen in the later novels is that there's a new character introduced, uh, this woman, uh, Harriet Vane. And the thing about Harriet Vane is interesting. She was one of the first women to graduate from Oxford. Uh, she was, uh, she writes mystery novels for a living, and Harriet and Peter end up falling in love and what a lot of people think happened is that uh, Dorothy Sayers, the author of this book, saw Peter Whimsey, the character that she had created, and didn't know what else to do except write herself into the story to save him. Don't you see? That's exactly what we read in this Bible. God created us, saw us in our condition, wrote himself into the story to save us. That's exactly what we're looking at. Not exactly, it's, it's a pretty good illustration, but. <laughs> uh, so another thing I'd like to leave you with, Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, to just kind of give us this, I, I, I love, we, we keep going back to Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. Um, it's just one of those classic texts. If you have your Bible in front of you, open up to it. It should be all marked up. If it's not, that's my challenge. It just gives us this gospel story in a, in a great sense. Um, and it, perfect parallel with Isaiah 53. So I'll, I'll say it for you uh, so you can read it along. And we were dead in the trespasses and sins in which we once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show us the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, not a result, uh, this is not your own doing, it is, uh, it is a gift of God, not result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand, that we should walk in them.
That's the gospel. That's why I'm up here. <laughs> That's what has changed my life. That is what has changed so many lives that I'm looking out on right now. That's the life-changing power of the gospel. <laughs> my parents will tell you. This is not the same person. This is an alive person up here, a living person, not the dead person that they were very patient with for many, many years. I love you for that. Thank you. I'd like to leave you with one final illustration before we get to our application, our challenge. So this final illustration to uh, just kind of help you understand this gospel message a little bit better. Uh, so my great uncle Paul. Anybody, nobody met my great uncle Paul? Neither have I. So he, uh, better known as Sergeant Paul Foster. You can look him up on a Wikipedia page if you would like. Sergeant Paul Foster. Uh, he died, oh boy, I forget the year. He died in the Vietnam War. Uh, 67, thank you very much, mother. <laughs> awesome. Again, uh, they know the story better than me, so if you'd like to learn more about it, ask my dad, ask my mom. They're right back there by the uh, giant robot heating and air conditioning things. So Sergeant Paul Foster, so he was on uh, a mission, I suppose it was, in Vietnam. Uh, they were... Uh, all of a sudden, attacked. They had um, Vietnamese coming down on them. They were, it was not looking good. So uh, someone, someone from the other side threw a grenade. Uh, it blew up. It wounded him. He was wounded, at, but he was still living. So then a little bit later on, what happened is, is they were, uh, their position was getting worse and worse. Uh, he was with about four or five other companions. Another grenade came in their midst. Now, Sergeant Paul was already wounded at this point, so what he decided to do in decision, quick as that, was to throw his flak jacket down on the grenade, lie over it, and he was killed. But his companions with him were saved. He received the Medal of Honor for that. Uh, my dad actually got to go meet President Nixon as a little four or five-year-old, something like that. Very small boy, he got to meet President Nixon. Um, and this is all because of what Sergeant Foster had done. He'd given his life so that his friends could live. That's exactly what Jesus has done for us. That's the gospel story. That's, that's what gets me fired up. That's why I can public speak now. This is amazing. So I would like to leave you with one final challenge. One final challenge. We're going to look at uh, First Peter in the second chapter. This is my challenge. For those of you who confess Jesus as your Savior, this is my challenge to you in verses 24 and 25 of First Peter. Um, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you are straying like sheep, but now have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. So one of the common critiques of justification by faith, of this, this received, this given righteousness that we don't earn, is, well, then I can do whatever I want, right? I can do whatever I want, and God will accept me. I've got my ticket to heaven. I'm good to go. But I would say that that's not the message of the gospel. The message of the gospel is you have been freed from sin. Live for righteousness. Live 
uh, doing those good works, doing loving other people. This is what we're this is what we're called to do. We're called to return to our shepherd and overseer. So he has saved us. Let's follow him. Let's give him everything we have. So my challenge to you uh, is a challenge I received a few months ago. For those of you who put your faith in Jesus Christ as your Savior, who you trust in him for your righteousness, and there's nothing that you could do that uh, would make you acceptable to God, that you're completely relying on Jesus. My challenge to you is to pray by yourselves to your shepherd and overseer, God, I will do the very next thing that you say. That's scary, isn't it? <laughs> tell him, tell him, I will do the very next thing that you tell me to do. Your word is revealed. I know what you want me to do already. The very next thing that comes into your mind that you feel is from God, that you know is from God because it's consistent with scripture, I will do it. No matter what the cost, no matter how it will make me look to my friends, my family, my coworkers, I will do it. That's my challenge to you, and I will do the same thing. Trust me, it scares me too. <laughs> it's not just you, it scares me too. Uh, my second challenge to those of you who have not professed faith in Christ as your savior, as your means of righteousness and acceptance by God, I would challenge you. If you don't believe the things that I've said, if you don't believe the things that Isaiah has said, that God has said, that is consistent in scripture, if you don't, if you don't want to, if you're not ready to give up yet, if you're like, maybe when I'm 80 years old, 90 years old, then I'll do it, but now I want to live my life, I would challenge you to just take another look. Take another look. Are you really sure that you can make yourself acceptable to God? Are you really sure? You, <clears throat> look back on your life. I do the same thing. Is that, would that be acceptable to a holy, perfect, all-powerful, all-knowing being? Is that acceptable? Is that good enough? Because the Bible says it's not. The Bible says that we are far worse than we could have imagined and yet far more loved. So I would challenge you, take another look. Read Isaiah 53, maybe one more time, and then ask yourself, where, where do I stand with him? Do I need Jesus? Because I would encourage you, yes, you do. So uh, please join me in a final word of prayer as the band comes up. We're going to close out in a, a song of worship. Father, thank you so much for your word from Isaiah 53. Thank you so much for what your son Jesus did on the cross. Um, thank you so much for, for Easter, for Resurrection Sunday, that not only he went out into the wilderness, but he rose again. He is living. He is not dead. God is not dead. Thank you for that so much, Father. God, we just, I pray that you would just keep working in all of our hearts, mine the foremost. Um, and just thank you so much for everything that you've done, everything that you're doing and that you are in control, and we're not. Thank you so much for that, Father. God, I just pray these things in Jesus' name. In his name we trust. Amen.